Firestorm, the Fire and Water Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, and along with me, as always, is my co-host, the buddy cop lover, Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? I'm getting too old for this shit. <laughs> and, folks, we have a very special guest with us here. In fact, this is a crossover, and not just a crossover with like other Fire and Water stuff where we just kind of knock on the door down the way and go, hey, you know, you want to do something with us? No, this is a cross-network event. This is like the kind of thing on Sunday night on NBC where they'd be like the bomb, 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 the big lights and big crossover. Anyway, it is the Fire and Water Podcast Network teaming up with the folks over at the Two True Freaks Network. This is awesome. We've got Paul Spataro himself, the man, the myth, the legend with us. Paul, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. This is a crossover three years in the making, as we were just discussing. <laughs> We've been talking about doing this forever. But it was an unofficial crossover that we're covering, so I guess it would take long to put it all together because of that. You know, that's perfectly, that fits perfectly, right? Because there was like a three-year gap between the two cross, the two events, so that's perfect. Oh, that's great. So yes, uh, today you're going to listen, or how, whenever you're listening, I guess it's today for you at home, you're going to listen to this episode of Fire and Water Podcast, where we are going to talk about Aquaman number 56. Then, after this, folks, you're going to go over to the Two True Freaks Network, go to the Back to the Bins podcast, and listen to us cover Namor number 72. And why would you do Aquaman and Namor together? You're going to find out as we get into this. But first, we need to take a second to thank our sponsors, or as we like to call it, paying the bills. Folks, this episode of the Fire and Water podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStock Trades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Rob, what would you bring today? 
Well, since we're talking about a Steve Skeets Aquaman comic and a Steve Skeets Submariner comic, I chose not to reinvent the wheel. And once again, I'm going to plug Aquaman, The Search for Mirror, the deluxe hardcover edition. This reproduces Aquaman numbers 40 through 48, which was the entire Search for Mirror storyline. The first eight issues of the, uh, the great run by SAG, Skeets, Apero, and Giordano. The cover is by Nick Carty. The normal price is $34.99. In stock trades price is $20.29. That is 42% off. These stories, I've been going on and on and on about them for the eight years we've been doing this show. And, and on and on and on. And, on. and on. some of them are finally collected. These first eight issues, they are some of the best Aquaman comics ever done. So they're finally collected. So Aquaman, The Search for Mirror, Deluxe Hardcover. How, which issues does it cover? 42 through what? 40 through 48. Oh, okay, so it doesn't get to 56. Okay. No, right. we don't well, get to 50. The issue that we're going to be covering tonight has yet to still be reprinted. <laughs> you know what? That just makes it that's more, that more special. So, uh, folks, I have picked a little off-brand. Uh, well, actually, you know what? It's, it's never doesn't matter. I don't need to do the setup. This is the Fire and Water Podcast Network. We're going to be talking about Namor t- uh, within this crossover. So I picked a book called Decades, Marvel in the 40s, trade paperback with Human Torch versus Submariner. Thought that's great. You get fire, you get water, you get Namor. It's a great idea. This is helping to celebrate the 80 years of Marvel Comics. It's basically a bunch of team-ups or and fights between Human Torch and Namor from the 1940s. It includes stuff from Marvel Mystery Comics 7 through 10, Human Torch 50. Or I don't know whether this is 58 or 5B. Everything says 5B, which doesn't make any sense. They anyway. did do some weird numbering back then, so it's okay. possible that it is 5B. Well, Paul's old enough to remember. He was there during the during the Great War. So I was, uh, yeah, I was, I was, you know, an old man already back then. Exactly. Uh, and so, anyway, a few issues from the Human Torch comic as well. It's a total page count of two hundred and thirty-two pages, published by Marvel in full color. Normally retails for twenty-four ninety-nine. You can get it for forty-two percent off right now, so it's only fourteen dollars and forty-nine cents. Again, Fire and Water, Namor. It looks like a great collection. We just recently read some of these classic stories with Human Torch and Namor, and they were a lot more interesting than I, I expected. I really enjoyed them. So head over to InSock Trades and check these out. All right. With that said, Rob, why don't you tell the folks at home a little bit about why this, why we're doing Aquaman and Namor together? Right. Yeah. So this is uh, Aquaman number 56, and the story is called The Creature That Devoured Detroit. And it's against by Steve Skeets, Jim Aparo, and Dick Giordano. And uh, this was the final issue of the Aquaman series. Uh, now, of course, the book was picked up again in 1977 with the original numbering, uh, number 57, and then continued on to 63. But this was really the final issue of the original Aquaman series that had started way back in 1962. And so when, when this was written by Skeets, he had every intention of continuing the story, but the book was basically canceled out from under him. And we will get into the, some of the reasons why that happened, why it was so abrupt. But uh, like any good creative person, you never throw anything away. So when, <laughs> when Steve Skeets uh, eventually ended up writing the Submariner comic for Marvel, uh, he decided to dust off the part two sort of version he had of the story lying around. I think it was really more just kind of a bare bones plot. And he turned it into a Submariner story. And there's even a moment, and we'll get to it in the Back to the Bins episode, where uh, a character appears in the Submariner story who is ostensibly Aquaman. 
Uh, he's, not, he's not called that, but he nevertheless is Aquaman. So this is an unofficial crossover between Aquaman and Submariner that took place across two different series, across two different years. And uh, this would really be like, again, it's unofficial. So it's kind of like the Squadron Supreme and stuff like that where it's one of those. But it you know, certainly predates the first Marvel DC crossover, which was Superman versus Spider-Man Treasury Edition, which was like uh, five years later. And I thought, uh, well, some of the sites claim that this is the first unofficial Marvel DC crossover, which I, I kind of did a little more searching. I don't think that's true. Like, if you look at the uh, Rutland Parade stories, I don't know, are you guys familiar? The Rutland with Vermont stories. Yeah. Right, Do yeah. You know, Okay, so those were a Marvel DC crossover, and those sort of predate it. It's interesting. Even though the first one comes out after the Aquaman issue, the that crossover occurs before the Namor issue is published. So really it does – you know, it beats – it comes out after Aquaman, but it beats the crossover. So it's so while this is still one of the earliest crossovers, it's, uh, it's, it's probably not the first one. Still pretty cool. Now, we're going to do the synopsis here in just a second. But, Paul, before, uh, before this crossover uh, episode we're doing here at Back to Bins and Firewater, had you read these comics before? <laughs> well, I've read them in the last three years. Because, uh, <laughs> as I said, we've been talking about doing this forever. But I, I had read the Submariner issue. I did not know the significance of it. Uh, I had not read the Aquaman story, and to be honest with you, if I had read them separately over a period of time, I wouldn't have even realized the uh, the crossover. It's not that it's subtle, it's really not, uh, but it's just, both stories are generic enough that I think I would have just kind of moved on and not really thought about them too much, so I almost needed somebody to, to you know, to, to put the, uh, you know, put the dots together for me and create the picture. I love that because actually I'm the opposite. I read the Aquaman issue, but I'd never read the Namor issue. And I'm, the, I agree with you totally. Yeah. If, cause these were published about three years apart. If, if I had read one and read the other three years later, no way in the world would I have figured that out. Not even remotely. It, it didn't seem, does it seem screamingly obvious to you, Rob? Cause I, I wouldn't have seen it. No, not at all. I didn't know about it until I read about it. I think in like uh, an amazing heroes in the eighties mm. or something. And I was like, Oh, that's really funny. And then I went and dug up the Namor comic, got it out of a, a back issue bin, and I was like, oh, okay, that's that's fun. It was one of those things that you could just ignore it if you want to, but it's, it's again, I think it's a testament to Steve Skeets' kind of impish sense of humor that he did this. I love when they do stuff like this, I have to say. Every time they do a uh, an unofficial crossover or they do a parody of the other company, you know, like the Squadron Supreme, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just get a huge kick out of it. And I'm glad the companies don't seem to have a problem with it. I mean, there, there have been times I, I know where John Byrne would have people in the background in Marvel comics where, you know, it appeared to be Superman or, or Clark Kent or somebody, you know, things like that. Uh, I love that what that they do them. And I love that, the other, like I said, the other companies don't seem to really try to stop it. And it went on pretty far, like even into the 80s. Like I remember um, on, on the Invasion podcast, they talked about the the great 80s X-Men issue with, about the gene bomb, but it was the gene gray bomb. You know what I mean? They, very tongue-in-cheek, having fun with it. And that I don't, I can't really think of many of those crossovers like past the 80s, you know, going into the 90s and such. I guess maybe they still do some of it, but they're so – they're more, much more high-profile nowadays, the comics, so it's harder to sort of hide that in there and get it away with it. So I, I, think, I think it's something from a bygone era, really. Well, it's also the, the notion of cross-promotion companies is, is not so special anymore because now we see licenses crossing over constantly. So it just, it's just – it's commonplace now. One of, one of my favorite moments was 
I think it's during the trial of Jean Grey during the Dark Phoenix saga. If I remember right, in the background, there's Popeye is standing there. <laughs> it's just just one of my, my favorite little moments of Terry kind of Austin crossover. loved putting characters in the background. He there's an issue of X Men with um the Phantom Stranger standing in the background. Oh, that's great! Right? Yes, that's fantastic. Well, I, I think this is a really neat crossover for us to do with, across Fire and Water and Back to the Bins because you guys you tend to lean more Marvel. I, I think in your love, and we obviously lean more DC in our love, and that you know this is an intercompany crossover. We're doing an internetwork crossover. I think it's just a, it's like a perfect win-win. It fits great. It's, it's a perfect storm. Yep. Yeah, it's funny. You know, as I grew up, I thought all the love was for Marvel and DC was like almost the uh, forgotten sibling for a while. You know, in the seventies when I was collecting. And uh, now, like in the podcasting arena, I find that my Marvel love makes me part of the minority, mm. which I, I, I think it has changed. I don't think it's that I was wrong in the 70s. I think in the 70s, Marvel kind of dominated because they moved into the Bronze Age more quickly than DC did. DC was kind of mired in the Silver Age for a while. You're not you're not wrong there, and I think some of it maybe too just be the pod because there are a ton of Marvel podcasts out there. It might just be the circles you're running in too, because I mean I, I I agree I see a lot more DC podcasters, but I think we're sort of surround ourselves with like people. That's kind of what it is. It's sort of like politics, you know. It's like, Get out of your Marvel bubble, Paul. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? When I started collecting, I was focused on Marvel, and then I, you know, I started collecting in the early seventies, mid, you know, to the early to mid seventies, and then uh, like slightly later, like maybe around seventy six or so, I started expanding and getting a, a bunch of DC books. So it's not that I, I was, you know, ignorant of the DC books or, or that I was avoiding them, and I, I certainly don't have that, you know, I'm rooting for for the company that isn't my favorite to fail attitude <laughs> that I see from people that I think is just so stupid. Uh, I, you know, I, I like both. I love both. Uh, what I never want to see, though, is, and I've heard people champion this idea, what I never want to see is one company owning them all and just kind of integrating all the characters into one oh, world. That's a terrible idea. That's a terrible yeah, I, idea. I would hate that idea. Yeah. Well, for me growing up, I started off initially as a Marvel guy, and I thought Marvel, and, and I'm talking 12 years old here, and I thought Marvel was great, and I thought DC was just old and boring and, and things like that, which I was right because it was pre-crisis. And then Crisis came <laughs> along, and I flipped. I, I heard Rob. That was good. Uh, and, and I flipped, and I became a DC fan after Crisis. And then I, then I had this attitude where I'd say, well, Marvel was comic book training wheels. And then once you the training wheels come off, you become a DC fan. That was my philosophy for a while. I was, I was such a pretentious little turd. Anyway, I still, I still am. But, um, yeah, I was like, was? <laughs> well, no, he's a pretentious, much bigger turd. That's right. Now, while I spend majority of my time podcasting about DC, truthfully, in my off time, you know, like I'm off duty, I actually read more Marvel. Marvel Unlimited is like my favorite playground in the world. I read so much Marvel on that thing, hundreds of comics every year, because uh, I keep track because I'm a nerd and I like lists. But I read so much Marvel that uh, I, I, I've got the love, man. I absolutely love it. It's from the Bronze Age forward. Oh, it's just, just awesome. How do we not have Marvel Unlimited as a sponsor? You do so much shelling for them every week. We should reach out to them. We really no, should. <laughs> Didn't they recently uh, start a DC version of that? We do not speak of that. Oh, no? okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yes, we they they have a, a DC version. It's called DC Universe. And if you and I, I'm 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 I give them my money as well. If you love uh, DC video, like streaming video of movies, Superman movies, and Batman movies, and com uh, cartoons and animated series stuff like that, it's great. It's absolutely wonderful. If you're a DC Comics fan, 
it's okay. It's not great. Uh, the biggest problem is that they don't put a lot of long runs out there, and then they take them off after a while. Whereas Marvel is a big repository, and whenever they add anything, it just stays there forever, and you can read it at your leisure. DC would have, have to read what they give you, and then you have to read it in their time frame, which I'm not a huge fan of. They're getting better. They're getting better. On that down note, because I got all down on it, why don't we actually dive into the comic? Rob, why don't you do the synopsis for us? Let's talk about this comic, because this comic is very special to me, as Rob knows, and I'm going to talk about that. Uh, why don't we get into it, and then we'll talk about the uh, th- our thoughts at the end. I was about to say, it took us three years to do this recording, and we're taking another three years to get to the actual book we're here to talk about. <laughs> uh, so, so, yes, again, this is Aquaman number 56, The Creature That Devoured Detroit by Steve Skeets, Jim Aparo, and Dick Giordano. The cover is by Nick Cardi with a monster that looks kind of Neil Adams-ish, I have to say, although I've never been able to to verify that that was drawn by uh, Neil Adams. I think it was by that's, Nick Cardi. That's actually my first note, is Nick Cardi drew the cover. I would have said Neil Adams. Yeah, that monster. First note in my, on my page. That, that Aquaman is total Cardi, but that monster is very Neil Adams. So, I mean, you know, we know that Neil was in the office all the time, and so who knows? Uh, it was on sale January 5th. 1971. So before we get to the story, I got to ask you guys, like, what do you think of just this cover? I want to start. Shag, I know what you think of it, and I'm tired. Yeah, start, of your start with Paul. Point. Let's start with Paul. Paul, what do you think of this as a cover? I like it. I would. I. Uh... I, I often, when I grade covers, I look at it from the point of view of if I was on the stands as a young collector, would I pick it up based on the cover? And there's no question. As as a young fan, I would have, and probably as an old fan, I still. I like it. I, I don't think it's 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 a little atypical because Aquaman is kind of going away from the reader, so you're not seeing him in a in a heroic pose coming towards the reader at all. But I, I'm I'm pretty high on it. How could you turn down that title, "The Creature That Devoured Detroit"? I mean, it's just. <laughs> and Aquaman's take, fly, take my and Aquaman's fifteen fly. cents, Mister Newsvendor, sir. Yeah, when did Aquaman learn how to fly? <laughs> uh, I'm going to say that he was on a very high building and he jumped off it. He's that badass. And, and he's jumping probably a couple of miles to get to that creature, <laughs> judging either, by the size of the building. Either either that or he just asked Superman to throw him as he was flying by. He's like, hey, I heard of this cool thing called the fastball special. Yeah, exactly. Right. I'm, I'm willing to totally forgive the flying Aquaman, though. I, 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 I like the cover a lot. Yeah. All right, Rob, your thoughts? Well, no, I love it. I mean, like, it's great. It's exciting. I mean, it doesn't really represent the story inside, but it was pretty clear that from all the covers Nick Cardi did, he just probably didn't really care about what was the story. <laughs> he just kind of drew what he wanted, and they were like, hey, that's fine. Um, so, no, I think it's it's very compelling. I mean, I liked it. Aquaman is headed towards the creature. The creature is really cool looking, and I love the title of the story. I like the way it's laid out. So, no, I think it's a great cover. All right. Well, here's my story. And, Paul, you hit the nail on the head. Is this cover good enough to get someone to pick it up and collect it? I'm living testament, sir, that that answer is yes. Not that I bought it off the newsstand fresh. However, somewhere around 1989 or 1990, I decided that I was going to become an Aquaman collector. I had been a fan of the character since uh, well, I was a little kid with Super Friends. And then 2000, or 1986 with the, the, the Neil Posner uh, miniseries, I decided, though, around 89 or 90, you know what? I want to collect Aquaman, and I want some sort of comic that I want to seek out on a regular basis. I want to have a back-issue comic to hunt for because i didn't have one my friends collected legion which i thought was cool when they'd go looking for old issues i decided i wanted something old so i decided i'm going to be an aquaman collector i went to the long boxes or as some might call them the bins and i went through the aquaman section and i said i need an old what i called silver age which 
maybe Bronze Age, really, but either way, I said I need an old comic to start with, and after flipping through all of them, this cover was so damn good, I decided that this was the comic I was going to start collecting Aquaman with. I pulled it out, I found that the creature that devoured Detroit is freaking hysterical. As you said, everything about the art is gorgeous, it's beautiful, the colors, everything about this cover is great. I was so excited, I bought it, got home and read it, and said, oh my gosh, I picked the last issue of Aquaman, how could I have done that? (laughs) (laughs) But yes, the cover is that good that it made me decide that this is where I'm starting my collection. There you go. Perfect. Woo, all right. All right. So, yeah, we'll get to the story. It said uh, it's the creature that devoured Detroit, as we said. So uh, Aquaman is scheduled to appear on the popular nighttime talk show, The Warren Savin Show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, along with Aquaman, the other special guests are Denise Lovely, Laura Van Skeet, novelist, and Neil Dennis, the Frank Markowitz Stanters, and Bertram the Singing Frog. <laughs> but uh, but when but when host Warren Savern introduces Aquaman, he's nowhere to be seen. A state of emergency has been declared in the Motor City, somewhere in orbit over Detroit. A mysterious satellite has been reflecting sunlight down on the city, bathing Detroit in perpetual daylight. The steady increase in heat has caused the algae growing in Lake Erie to grow at a phenomenal rate. The upsurge in growth of the microscopic flora threatens to overrun the city, and evacuation plans are being discussed. Aquaman pays a visit to Detroit to investigate the strange phenomena. First, he looks up an old friend, a man named Don Powers, a former police forensic scientist. Meanwhile, Detroit's own costume vigilante, the Crusader, breaks up a car theft ring. Local authorities use coal to retard the growth of the algae and as it surges into Detroit. Aquaman garners the location of his old friend from a local policeman. Powers established his own corporation dedicated to aiding law enforcement agencies worldwide. Powers is more than happy to see Aquaman again, proudly providing a tour of his facility. In the course of their conversation, Powers reveals that it is his company that launched the mirrored satellite, which has turned night into day in Detroit. Powers is unconcerned with the ecological damage being wrought by his satellite. Without darkness, the crime rate in Detroit has fallen by as much as 38% in some parts of the city. When Aquaman makes a move to remote detonate the satellite, Powers, with the aid of some of his scientists, knock the Sea King out. While the scientists remove Aquaman's unconscious body, Powers sequesters himself in his private office. Accessing a hidden panel, Powers grabs his costume, revealing himself to be the Crusader. It turns out that Powers is going blind. His failing eyesight has already forced him to abandon his late-night activities as the Crusader. It was then that Powers hit upon the idea of launching the satellite and turning night into day. Able to resume his costume identity, Powers, as the Crusader, hoped to bring down the organizers behind the car theft rings plaguing Detroit. Aquaman's involvement, however, meant that Powers' time was short. Whether done personally or with the assistance of the Justice League, Aquaman will make sure Powers' satellite is destroyed. Going out of patrol one last time, Powers looked to bring in Detroit's crime bosses, allowing him to retire the Crusader identity in a blaze of glory. Awakening in the park, Aquaman is witness to a young girl being swept under a wave of algae bursting out of Lake Erie. Aquaman rescues and recovers the girl. The city of Detroit officially instigates its evacuation procedures. Aquaman makes his way back to Powers' corporate office. Along the way, he is drawn to a crowd, one that is gathered around the lifeless body of the Crusader. While leaping across across rooftops, Powers' terrible eyesight failed to perceive a series of wires lining the roofs. Tripping over them, Powers fell to his death. A bystander pulls off the Crusader's mask, revealing his identity to Aquaman. The Sea King is stunned to find that not only was his old friend the Crusader, but that he has now perished. Aquaman continues on to Powers' corporate office. Storming the building, Aquaman battles his way past security guards and scientists until, at last, he gains access to the satellite control room. From there, Aquaman remote detonates the satellite, 
returning night to Detroit and ending the ecological threat to the Motor City. The end. Or of, was of it? sorts. Of yeah. sorts, yes. Of course, you had to go across the street to, to Marvel Comics to get the part two of the story. So, uh, I mean, Guy, I, geez, I have so much to say about this. But, I mean, Paul, you're our guest. What did you think of this story? Uh, very Silver Age. <laughs> I thought it was fun to read. Uh, I thought the artwork was really cool in it for the most part. I think uh, the story is just kind of silly. <laughs> But but fun, you know. That's that to me. That's the Silver Age. That's the the Golden Age. Silly but fun. You know, they they weren't as serious back then in their plotting. I mean, how how you could have this satellite causing perpetual daylight and nobody knows that this is going on to stop it, or that this is causing the growth of the algae, just seems an absolutely ludicrous thing. And, and a but, private investigator funded the satellite too, which is crazy as well. Yeah. But, it, but it's just fun stuff. I got a kick out of, well, two things. The little framing sequence sequence to open it up with this uh, misogynist and his wife. <laughs> the, the lock horns here, yeah, as they're turning on the Warren Savin show. He, uh, he reminded me of Robert Forster, the way he looks. He does look like Robert Forster. Yes, that's true. So that, that I just kind of got a kick out of that. And then I got a kick out of the Johnny Carson show being the Warren Savin show. So I did a little research on that, and I found... That Warren Savin, or a character named Warren Savin, appeared in What If Number 23 in a story that I believe was written by Stephen Skeets. Well, that's because Warren Savin was one of Skeets' pen, pen names. Oh, okay. And in, in that one, he's a uh, news reporter. In this one, he's clearly Johnny Carson. Yes. But I had yeah. looked him up because I was curious, you know, where did that name come from? Did that have any significance? So that's why I looked him up. Yeah. Now, when, when when Skeets was writing for several different companies, he tried a couple different names, and Warren Savin was one of them. And again, I love this framing sequence, partly because Jim Apera was so good at likenesses. And so on that first page, you get the guy who's clearly Ed McMahon, and then the next page, it's Johnny Carson. And they are spot-on images of yes. Johnny oh, Carson yeah, and Ed McMahon. I mean, they are photorealistic good. I just love seeing that. What cracked me up is when they're re- when Ed McMahon's reading out the, the billing of all the people that are going to appear. It sounds like a 70s sort of special with like, yes. the Dallas Cowboy Chillers, but Aquaman gets fourth billing, <laughs> which just cracks me up. Because I'm mean, like, of course he would. I mean, it's, you know, by this point, superheroes are just commonplace. So yeah, he's going to be on the show tonight, too. You know. Well, Robert Forster doesn't even want to see him. That's right. Yeah, right. The guy's not even interested. Yeah, I... I really I love all the human interest stuff. I just think it's hysterical. And just as a, as a uh, little bit of trivia, at this point in 1969, 70, 71, the Johnny Carson show was like an hour and a half or an hour and 45 every mm-hmm. night. So that's why they had like nine guests on. I mean, you know, it took uh, to the 80s where the show got pruned down to an hour and he just had basically two guests and a, and a musical number or something. But in the old days, man, you had to cram the show. So I could see Aquaman being put in the middle of this long list. And by the way, it mentions novelist Neil Dennis. That is Steve Skeets' tribute to his pal, Denny O'Neill. That's what oh. I figured. I, I wondered, though, if it was O'Neill and Neil Adams. Or, you know, was it supposed to be Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams together? I always heard that it was Denny O'Neill, that he just okay. flipped the name. But, I mean, I, that could be wrong. That, now, uh, I mean, being the Aquaman guy, would Aquaman appear on The Tonight Show? 
<laughs> you know, I mean, Aquaman was always pushing his ecological agenda, as we, as they say. So I would see why, you know, why not? Uh, I, I think it's unprofessional for him to split the show and not tell anybody. I mean, like he's literally waiting behind the curtain to come on, and then he, then he's not there. That's not a good idea. I mean, what the, I wonder what Warren Savin did after that to, to fill the time space. Now, I, I also found the character of the Crusader to be fascinating. Uh, the whole idea that he's going blind. And that he's out there doing this and that he created this satellite because he's going blind to give himself more light. And then to kill him off in the same issue because of his blindness that he trips over wires just seemed like a kind of a bold move when you introduce a new character like this. But uh, I, I, like I said, I thought it was fascinating. Well, they even go as far as to say he tried out for the JLA previously. I mean, they, they create this guy like – Almost as a fully rounded character, he's, he he reads a lot more than just a throwaway character in an issue. Like if you didn't know any better and you read this, you would probably think the Crusader had appeared a whole bunch before this. You would think he had had many previous adventures because he really seems pretty well formed. And yeah, this you're right, Paul. This this issue to me, I didn't think it was goofy, but I think it is jam packed full of story ideas. Like way more story ideas than they should have shoved into one issue. I really do feel that. Oh, this could have been as easy as six page, a six issue miniseries. <laughs> you could have extended it and had this character, you know, not that you develop him more, like you said, he is fully developed, but you could take your time developing him instead of just having him existing fully formed. His costume, I, I thought was interesting because it's kind of a combination of D Man and Batrock the Leaper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm down with that. <laughs> I mean, th- this story is definitely one of the better examples of Steve Skeets' kind of like dark wit in that it gives you guys to talk about that. You you know, you spend all this time bringing in the Crusader and turning him into ostensibly like a supporting character. And by the again, he's mentioned that he tried out for the Justice League, which does suggest a bit of a history. I would have loved to have read that issue, by the way. You know, <laughs> the Justice League says no. Um, but then, you know, the final panel of the Crusader where he's got the thought balloons and he says, who knows? Maybe it won't be a few days. Maybe it'll only be a few hours. After all, tonight could be the night. And then he falls to his death right after that. I mean, that's just Steve Skates just screwing with the audience. And I, I really enjoy that because it, it, it's just – it's just him having fun. I mean, just like you're, you're. They didn't generally introduce supporting superheroes just to kill them off a couple of pages later. But Steve Skeets is like, yeah, what the hell? Let's just have some fun. And I just, I just love that. I mean, the joke's on poor Don Powers here, but I, I really get the sense that Skeets is enjoying himself. I would agree. interestingly, just by chance, we recorded an episode of Back to the Bins last week uh, with myself, Bill, and excuse me, Professor Allen. And we covered an issue of Iron Man with a Submariner guest starred in it. And this is, you know, purely by chance. It's from the same era. And the uh, the story has to do with a perpetual daylight or a perpetual or an electricity machine that's absorbing sunlight and causes algae and gases and everything to build up. It's another ecological story by Archie Goodwin. And it's very, very similar to this one, but through the magic of podcasting time travel, that one's not going to appear for about another four or five weeks. <laughs> but it's just, to me, it was fascinating to see how, you know, the, the parallels between these stories. It's obviously in the zeitgeist at the time, it sounds like. Yeah, well, I, I definitely think, you know, I, I think people think that, you know, uh, the ecological thoughts are only recent, you know, with, with uh, a lot of the political arguing that's going on, but they've been talking about this basically for my entire life. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and talking about the, all the light, I mean, who would really want Detroit to be well-lit 24 hours a day anyway, especially in the 70s? I mean, it was a nasty, dirty place back then. And, uh, and if anyone's in Detroit, I apologize. I am from Michigan, so I can speak from some authority. But um, I do like to think that, you know, Aquaman stopped by, right? He's there for his visit. He's helping out. And he looks around and goes, you know, this place is kind of a dump. It'd be a good place for the Justice League headquarters. <laughs> Little did we know how important Detroit would be to Aquaman. Yeah, they, this is clearly a seed got planted uh, at some point uh, in, in his in his life. Uh, one of the things that's uh, that's so sort of sad about this, of course, again, this is a lot. This is very fun. Uh, I mentioned at the Insock Trades ad because, of course, the first seven or eight issues of the series were a long continued story, which was the search for Mira. And then right after that, uh, Skeets plunged Aquaman into another kind of sci-fi thing where he went to a subatomic world and uh, that, that ran um, with these backup strips with Dead Man drawn by Neil Adams. And then eventually they sort of crossed over in the final thing. So Aquaman had appeared in two kind of long-run stories. And then after that, Skeets decided to basically do a series of one-offs. And hmm. so if you read like 52, 53, 54, 55, they're all one-and-dones. And this one's a one and done, although, of course, it was intended to be a two and done. But, I mean, this was uh, this was Skeets just sort of spinning the dial and trying different things. And, of course, uh, again, the book was canceled after this. Skeets didn't know it. Uh, they just canceled it basically after the fact. And I've mentioned this on previous episodes, and I will never get over it. Uh, <laughs> but this book was selling pretty well. Uh, and, in fact, uh, in this very issue, you can see if you have the original comic, uh, it comes with one of those statement of ownership Little mm-hmm. certificates, and it lists how many copies the book was selling. And at this point, Aquaman was selling about 160,000 copies. Now, in 1971, that wasn't that great. Um, nowadays, it would be a blockbuster. I, mean, I, think, <laughs> I don't think I don't think Batman sells 160,000 at this point. But that was it was still relatively popular. And the reason the book was canceled was mostly in a fit of peak by editor-in-chief Carmen Infantino because uh, at that point, editor Dick Giordano had decided to quit working for DC as a full-timer and he wanted to work from home as a freelancer. And he said, look, I can edit these books from home. I don't need to be in the office. And apparently Infantino didn't like that. And as kind of a little bit of a revenge on Giordano, he canceled a bunch of Giordano's books, (sighs) one of of which was Aquaman, even though it was selling pretty well. So poor Aquaman got screwed because there was a lot of inner office politics. Corporate dickery. It's awful. Yep. I'm a little surprised because I've always heard what a good guy Infantino was. So I'm well, a little surprised I mean, you know, to hear that all, he was so vindictive in this. We all have our moments. You know what I mean? I guess it was just maybe this is – I could see – let's be fair to Infantino since, of course, he's gone now and so is Dear General for, for that matter. But like I could see that if you're trying to run a company, you don't want your editors working from home. You know, especially in 1971. Nowadays, I'm sure with all the email and everything else, everything's just everybody's just shooting files back and forth. But back then, I could see, uh, you know, edit, wanting your editors to be in house. Yeah, uh, I, oh, I you, could absolutely see that. Then I would see, I could see saying, "You don't want to do this? That's fine. I'll hire somebody who does." Right. That's the weird thing. You would think you would just hand the book over to another mm-hmm. editor, not cancel it entirely. But and I have always really maintained. That Aquaman getting canceled so abruptly really damaged him as a brand in the 70s because, you know, um, 
Superman kept going, of course. Batman kept going. Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern. So by the time the 80s rolled around, all of those characters had titles in the hundreds. You know, like Flash ended with 350. Green Lantern made it all the way into the uh, 200s. Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman were in the 300s. And I think it really helped establish, like, their sort of legendary bona fides. And Aquaman never got that because his book got canceled so abruptly. And then it was brought back a bunch of years later. And it ran another six issues. And then that was it. And again, this is something else I keep talking about. Aquaman, as popular as he is, has never gotten past 75 issues of a solo yep. title, ever. Uh, I, I, he's up to like 45 now. That's 75 is still a long ways away. Uh, but it just bothers me that there is no, there's like, there is no Aquaman number 100. For a character who's 75 years old, that's just, that makes me very sad. <laughs> You should do the you should do the math, adding up all of the various series, uh, figure out what is you know, like Marvel does oh, their legacy that, number. Sure. It'd probably be up to yeah. almost two hundred by now. Oh, probably. Then, then what do you do with the like when he was featured in Adventure Comics and all of right. that? Right. How do you? Fold I don't think all that I don't think you count in. that. I think no. you just count actual issues that had Aquaman on the cover. The real question gets into what do you do with the miniseries? Do those count or not? Right, That's a right, tough right, one. Right. But the I think when, when Marvel does that, because I think they do it more often than DC, oh, yeah. I think they count the miniseries. Really? Because, uh, okay. well, I, what I can think of is, uh, I think they did it with Venom, which was, <laughs> Venom was introduced with a series of miniseries. Oh, yeah. I remember I sold them. <laughs> oh, so. man. Wow. I think I think they did that recently with him, where they gave him like a hundredth issue or something because they added the miniseries in. Wow! I hope it had a foil cover. Um, <laughs> I, since we mentioned Giordano and Paul, you mentioned the art in here. The art in this thing is freaking slick and gorgeous. I absolutely love it. It's funny as I'm flipping through it, I just noticed on page six, Giordano always did one of my favorite things, or maybe it was his stable of anchors that used his name. I don't know. But he sw- uh, the Crusader is swinging past a sign, and it's a storefront. And the sign, it, once you realize what's being blocked and covered up, it says Giordano. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it when he would work his name into stuff. That always made me happy. So, But, God, I mean, even the Crusader, even though his costume looks doofy, it's so dynamic looking in the motion. I mean, he, he's got the grittiness of Batman, as you said, with Batroc's mask. I mean, it's crazy. And uh, But it looks just – it's a beautiful, beautiful comic. And Rob always says this, so I'll steal it before he says it. When Aparo shows somebody getting punched, you can feel it. Like, oh, it yeah. hurts. Yeah. Oh, his action sequences are excellent. Yeah. When, when, when somebody punches, gets punched in a Jim Aparo's way, they look like their jaws shattered. Because uh, it is such monstrous force, yeah, it's just it's just unbelievable. I love this all. I love the way it's staged. I love that there's all these different chapter headings. There's like no blaze, no glory, the whole truth. I mean, this is this story is only like uh, what eighteen, twenty pages, and yet there's like four chapters in it. I mean, it's just amazing how much goes on in here. Um, like I said, I just think it's a blast. And before we uh, get off this book, I do want to mention one other little bit of trivia. Of course, there is another story in this comic. And mm. it's, a, it's a two-page story starring Aqua Girl called The Cave of Death. And it is by the same team, Skeet Aparo and Giordano. And it's just a fun little story of Aqua Girl saving a, a little kid, a little Indian kid who gets sucked into a, a cave that has like a weird whirlpool in it. And I actually asked Steve Skeets about this uh, a couple of years ago because I was like, well, what did, where did this come from? And he said that at the time as they were working on the book – Giordano wanted them to come up with a series of two to three page adventures featuring members of the Aquaman family that they could drop in 
uh, at various issues in case they had a story that was a little short or whatever. So this issue features a two-page Aqua Girl story. They actually did a three-page Aqua Lad story called The Girl from the Shadows, which was supposed to run in Aquaman, but the book got canceled, and it was eventually used in Teen Titans number 36 later that year. Whoa. I did not know that. Yep, and it's the yeah. last it's the last Aquaman family comic by the team of SAG. The SAG team is that's uh, it's the last time to do it. Uh featuring that particular team. And it's it's a great fun little mysterious story and I remembered I happened to buy that issue of Teen Titans just randomly and then I was like, "What is this? Like why is this little cool Aqualad story in here?" And then I wrote uh, I, I wrote Steve, and he said, "Oh yeah, no, they, they they had we they paid for it, so they just used it later on in a Teen Titans comic." Wow! <laughs> so we know that issue fifty-seven, like when Skate, we should be saying. By the way, didn't we find out his name is actually Steve Skates? I, you know what? I think it is Skates, but I just I, I've ever said Skeets, and I just can't help myself. Okay, so we, you know, he writes fifty-six. He doesn't know the book is canceled when he writes fifty-six because he, as you said, he had a plot for fifty-seven. Do we know? Did 57 ever go into production? Did Aparo ever draw any pages? As far as I know, no. I think because the book was bi-monthly. So okay. I think uh, they would have started on it or something, and then they just told it, no, it was canceled. So as far as I know, no, I've never seen anything. Um, there is, related to that, there was an Aquaman annual that was getting worked on while the book came back in the 70s, and they even mention it in the letters page about – You'll see this in an upcoming Aquaman annual, and that apparently did get worked on. But those pages, <gasps> of, yeah, I know. But apparently, those that that whole all that material has been lost to the mists of time. Oh, yep, 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 yep. yep. Well, so what we do have for continuity purposes is even though there was, I guess, seven years or six years between issue fifty four and or what's it, issue fifty four and issue fifty five? No, fifty six and fifty seven. Seven. Uh, we still had Jim Aparo drawing them both. Yes, yes. That's true. And Aparo drew Aquaman uh, in Adventure Comics when he ran Adventure Comics. And Steve Skeets wrote some of those. Uh, but they, they, never, they never collaborated again uh, as, uh, as writer and artist. Steve Skeets, Skates, excuse me, uh, wrote some of them drawn by someone else. And then Aparo drew stories written by Conway and Paul Levitz and David Michelini. So both, char- both creators returned to the character but never together. So uh, this was this was pretty much their their swan song on Aquaman proper. This well, unlike Steve Skates, uh, Jim Aparo is my Aquaman artist, uh, and the way I define that is not necessarily the best artist ever to work on the character, but the one who you think of first when you picture the character in your mind. Oh, I would Jim Aparo, no question, is the first guy I think of when when I think of Aquaman, uh, and he's also. Actually, the first guy I think of when I think of Batman as well. There you go. He's Brave my favorite comic book artist. Yeah, he's my favorite comic book artist of all time, Jim Aparo. Is he really? Yep. Oh, yep. I didn't know that. Yeah, I just, especially in the seventies, I feel like because um, in the sixties his work was a little cartoonier, and then in seventies it kind of tightened up and it got a little leaner and meaner. And I, I just feel like there's he can do no wrong in the seventies. If there's a if there's a comic book drawn in the seventies by Jim Aparo, I'm gonna love it. It's just I've yet to see anything I haven't liked. Those Brave and the Bold are gorgeous because you get to see so many different characters too under his pen, which is great. His romance stuff was great. He did horror, which was great. He did Batman, Brave and the Bold. I mean, everything. It's just, yeah, it's uh, Phantom Stranger. His run on the Phantom Stranger is unparalleled of how mm. good it is. So, yeah, I just, I, it just gives me such joy to use, use our uh, network catchphrase to look at Jim Apparel drawing anything, basically. It just makes me so happy. 
Well, before we move off of this, should do you want to tell people what the plot of 57 was before? It will tie into the Namor discussion we're going to have on Back to the Bins as well, but I just thought maybe that would be worthwhile to share. Well, I mean, it is basically the plot of what we're going to get to. Oh, because see, what I had understood was that, okay, so what I read, and this was according to a, a Dial B for blog site, they said that Skate's plan for 57 was to continue the story, and well, and, and the satellite blows up, and while Aquaman was heading out of Detroit, he discovers that he's lost his ability to breathe underwater and his telepathic powers. Oh, geez, I don't even remember that. I must, I'm sure I read that at some point, but I must have forgotten that. Okay. So it, it is a little different from the Namor story, and we'll we'll address the the connections there on on Paul's show. But uh, I just thought that was interesting that you know that was going to be the direction of the show, and like you said, it was going to be like a two parter because while the story of the Crusader and the Satellite are over, it would carry into Aquaman's next adventure. Yep, 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 yep. It's 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 all a bunch of missed opportunities. It's just so so upsetting because. Uh, these I think these are such great comics, and they were on such a nice run, and it would have been great to see Aquaman continue. And for many years, he could only be found in Justice League. That was it. And I'm more bothered by it now that you've explained why it was canceled. Right? Yeah, it does seem so silly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of always assumed that the sales weren't that great, and that would be why it was canceled. But obviously, that's not the case. Yeah, I mean, one hundred sixty thousand for nineteen seventy one is not a blockbuster. It's probably average. For it's that probably time, probably average for that time. But I mean, again, you compare it to today. That you know, I mean, there would be. I mean, Aquaman had two books on the stand, selling way less than one hundred sixty thousand combined. Mm-hmm. Well, before we wrap things up here, um, Paul, you know, in case someone is not familiar with Back to the Bins, why don't you give the elevator pitch so people know what that show is about, and, um, and, and then we'll sign off here, and we'll just go right into your show. Sure. Okay. Uh, really quickly, Back to the Bins is a comic review show of old comics, generally. Every once in a while, we veer off of the, the mission statement. But the mission statement is basically that we review old comics picked at random. Uh, we usually look for books at least 10 years old. I often find myself in the Bronze Age because that's my sweet spot. That's where I find my joy. Aww. So. That's that's what we do, and uh, we do it weekly, and uh, we've kept a weekly schedule now for, I don't know, six years, something like that. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of that show. And, and since you're here by yourself, because your co-host refused to podcast with Rob, I've read the, the messages. It's ugly. But what's, uh, who are these? Who is the we that you keep referring to? Yes. Uh, well, the show was started by Scott Gardner uh, with a... Uh, a young dude, and it was it was 86 episodes in when I joined because the hosts changed and everything. And Scott is still on, although he misses a fair number of episodes because life gets in the way. And shortly after I joined the show, Dr. Bill Robinson joined as well, and uh, we've been going strong, like I said, for quite a while now. And uh, hope you know, hopefully, people. I think there's room enough in the podcasting world for people to listen to Back to the Bins. And fire and water. Oh, I would hope so. I would hope so. So I have uh, hung out several times with uh, with Scott. I've even had Thanksgiving dinner with him. I've hung out multiple times with Bill. I've hung out with Michael Bailey, who was part of the show for a while. I haven't met you face-to-face yet, sir. So I'm hoping we can make that happen here in 2019. Yes, that that is, uh, for anybody listening who cares, uh, we are trying to make plans to do so this summer sometime. So hopefully we do get to meet face-to-face. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Well, folks, that's going to do it for this episode of Fire and Water Podcast. Please, we want to hear your thoughts on these, this incredibly important issue of Aquaman. If nothing else, besides the crossover, it's important because it was my first one. So uh, that's important enough, really. So go out to our website. Rob, what's that website? Fireandwaterpodcast.com. 
He's always so good. He's always so punctual. It's like he almost knows his mark. So go out there. to uh, Go to the show's tab. Look for the Aquaman and Firestorm show. Go to the comments. Leave your thoughts there. Let us know what you think about this issue and the uh, secret crossover. And then when you're done with that, head on over to the Two True Freaks feed and the Back to the Bins episodes and check out our discussion on Namor number 72. Now, in the- Just uh, to interrupt you, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but uh, just to, to let everybody know, this this episode that we're recording right now is going to be posted on March 10th. Uh, the Back to the Bins episode will be the following Saturday, which will be the 16th, I believe. See, I just wanted them to keep going over there and checking it every day going, what the heck, where is it? But you had to go and be specific. That's fine. Well, I just don't want people to look and say, oh, it doesn't exist. Shag was lying again. That's a long, long list of, of things. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, in the meantime, you can go out to the social medias as well. You can find us at Firestorm Fan and Aquaman Trine or Fire and Water Podcast on Twitter. Um, Paul, there's a Two True Freaks Twitter handle as well. Isn't that correct? <laughs> I believe so. Uh, I don't <laughs> I do not do Twitter. <laughs> if only Gene Hendricks was here to tell us. Um, so, anyway, then you can find us all on Facebook. Uh, there's a Choo Choo Freaks Podcast Network group. There's the Cantina as well. Of course, Fire and Water Podcast is out there as well. So get out there in the social medias and talk about this. And then I guess that's going to do it for this episode, folks. So until next time or until Back to the Bins next episode, fan the flame. And watch out for high tension wires. <laughs> <laughs> Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. Soak them down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. They stand for truth and justice and see a land in there. Aquaman and Firestorm, they make a super pair. Aquaman and Firestorm, super friends forever. Yeah. You are about to witness the very exciting story of a city and its people. It will be an adventure that will open new sights in familiar surroundings. That city is Detroit.